When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. Tennis is numbers. Every point of every game set and match is logged, weighed and measured. Hidden in there is the truth. Crack the code and you find the trends and turning points. The answers to who wins and why. But here's the thing. Tennis isn't just truth. It's not just winning. The data on a hard drive's memory doesn't explain our own. Numbers don't add up to what we see, what we feel. Tennis is numbers. Roger Federer has 20 Grand Slam titles. But first, you remember his easy elegance. The monogrammed whites, the Swiss precision, his eloquence in victory. Rafael Nadal has 20 Grand Slam titles too. But first, you think of his intensity. The bulging bicep, the twitchy obsessions, the matador roar of celebration. Trophies are their props. How the stars play is what we remember. Back in the 1970s, it's John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg. They're different men, fire against ice, a volcanic temper and glacial cool. A contrast that demands you pick sides, a rivalry to split opinion and swell the gate. And in their slipstream is Vetus Skerilitis. Vetus is speed, a rush of long blonde hair to every corner of the court, a blur of hands punching volleys at the net. No big shots, no standout weapons, but breakneck, frantic pace. That isn't all, though. There's more to Vetus. It's the speed he changes his life. His parents were immigrants, part of the huddled masses washed to America's shores by a great war. His mother and father had barely a pair of suitcases when they arrived in New York. But, thanks to Vetus, they now watched that same Manhattan skyline from a Long Island mansion. Their son's energy taking the family away from their old fears. Most of all, though, Vetus is defined by the speed he lives his life. The girls and the glitter, the show-off cars and private jets, the music, the drink and the drugs. A muse of Warhol and a mate of Jagger, New York nights as high as skyscrapers. Everything to excess, nothing off the table. The Big Apple heavy with temptation and sin. One year, the rumor goes, he has the third biggest American Express bill of any individual on the planet. It's an American dream at express speed. But dreams are ended by the clock. Tendons creak, legs age, and suddenly the ball drops out of reach. Cities change, scenes disappear, and the house lights come up. When the money is spent, when the momentum slows, what's left? And when you live as fast as Vetus, 
can you hold fast to anything? Vetus's story starts on a New York dance floor, but not one you might expect. Young dancers move in formation. Their faces are fixed in concentration as they swirl through their steps. They're dressed in traditional outfits, the boys in long, woolen coats and hats, the girls in linen skirts and colourful aprons. High above the dancers is a shimmering roof, supported by soaring pillars. In front of them is a curious crowd of New Yorkers, and in the middle is a ten-year-old Vetus. It's September 1964. The stage is the World's Fair, an exhibition celebrating an American vision of the world and its future. And today is Lithuania Day. It's a country Vetus has never been to. He never will. But it is home. Vetus's grandfather had been a chief of police. His father had worked for the Ministry of Education. Solid jobs. Upstanding citizens. But as the world crumbled into war, those old certainties meant nothing. When half a million Soviet troops flooded over the border from the east, Vetus's parents had already headed west. Via Austria, and then Germany, they found their way to New York. Vetus is born soon after. Around him and his younger sister, Ruta, his parents weave a dream. It's a dream of a homeland so vivid, it almost makes up for what's left behind. Every week, Vetus is sent to Saturday school. He learns about Lithuania. He doesn't need the language lessons, it's already there. In the Gerolitis household, Lithuanian is all that is spoken. It's how Vetus hears the tales of what is lost. The Nida story is a favourite. It's a village set on a long beach on the Baltic Sea. The summer houses are painted red, green and yellow. Everywhere is clean air, white sand and blue ocean. It's simple, it's perfect. But, like all dreams, it is not real. It's idyllic, but idealised. It leaves out the details, the difficulties, the mess. And there is lots of mess in post-war Lithuania. After Vetus's family chose to leave, others are forced to. His parents went west, but more are deported east to Siberia. Those who refuse or resist are killed. Neighbour informs on neighbour. Freedoms freeze as the Cold War bites. And so, Vetus's parents hang out with other Lithuanian migrants in New York. They talk about the old country and marvel at the new. And when the World Fair comes to town, they and their children dance and dream of the homeland. One free of Soviet influence, one of which the World's Fair organisers would approve. Vetus's parents make a myth of the past. Maybe that makes it easier to believe in the romance of their future. Maybe as poor immigrants to a brash New York, there is no other way. Vetus's father was a former national tennis champion in Lithuania. The sport was one of the few things he could bring with him. It is one of the few things he can give to his children. Every weekend, Vetus is on the opposite side of the net. Forest Park in Queens is nothing special. Six cracked green rectangles, trees reaching up over the surrounding fence. But it doesn't have to be. The lessons are as basic as the courts. Vetus learns to read a bounce, to time a swing, and most of all, to chase. His father, whose own life plans have been turned upside down, teaches Vetus that a tennis career can fail. A shortage of skill, a lack of luck, injury or ill health, but never a lack of effort. Not from his son. In America, in sport, 
the promise is the same. Connections and background mean nothing. Effort and excellence are everything. Dream a life, claim a life. To make your fortune, though, sometimes you also need some fortune. For Vetus, it comes on a nondescript low-rise street at the outskirts of New York. Port Washington Tennis Academy opens in 1966, and Vetus makes the trip past the gas pumps, sewage works, and auto repair shops to walk through its doors a year later. It's not a country club. There isn't a pool or a restaurant. It's not a place for the great and good to gather and gossip. There's no time for that. It's a place for kids who want to get on rather than just get along. A few years later, a young McEnroe, already brash and loud, will start training there. It's perfect for Vetus. He's still in high school when he crushes the top-ranked player at Columbia University. Six love, six love. Word spreads of a teenage sensation. It's not that Vetus is from the wrong side of the tracks, it's more that Port Washington isn't even on the map. Vetus enrolls at Columbia University himself. It doesn't last long. The professional tennis world is calling. It's time to turn the grind into green. He reaches the Wimbledon quarterfinals as a 21-year-old. By 23, he wins the Australian Open. And Vetus knows exactly what to do with the prize money. Seven bedrooms, seven bathrooms, a pool, gardens, and a private beach. It's a home. More importantly for Vetus, it's a family home. A way to repay. So the whole Gerolitis family move into the Art Deco mansion with him. In a generation, Hustle has delivered the American dream. At least one part of it. Fifty years before Vetus arrives at his new Long Island home, F. Scott Fitzgerald had stood on the same shore. He saw the mansions, he saw the parties, he saw the cars. He saw how the cash burned and the twenties roared. And he wrote The Great Gatsby, a novel about America, new money and old weaknesses. Half a century later, across the water from Vetus's balcony, shine New York's lights. Partying, pleasure, the people, the promise of fame enjoyed, a nightlife lived, and another dream to chase. Vetus and his father sit in front of a television camera. They're shooting a commercial. Vetus is the face of a new Persia, slick, youthful, European chic, but with an American appetite for life. That's the idea. Vetus is driving. His father's in the back. Around them, makeup artists, microphone men, and hangers-on. The camera rolls. The clapperboard snaps. Silence falls. Vetus's father leans forward and, in a voice dripping with disdain and his strong Lithuanian accent, asks, What for, Vetus, do you need to have this long hair? For his father's generation, what you do defines you. For Vetus, how you do it is just as important. Vetus plays tennis, but he also plays a role. With his curly hair flowing behind him, the court is his kingdom. A matinee idol winning hearts, minds, and matches. He showboats, he rages, he laughs, he brags. But he always charms. As colour television arrives, he's waiting. A Technicolor character for a new age. Tennis hasn't always been like this. As a teenager, Vetus trained at Port Washington, but he works across town at Westside Tennis Club. 
He's a member of the ground staff, tending court surfaces, tightening net cords, and an unwritten part of the job this. Vetus is there to be seen. For the well-off members of the West Side Club, their membership dues keep someone always on hand. Someone to carry a bag, to sweep the lines, to ice a drink. And Vetus resents every second of it. Tennis for him isn't dress codes and decorum. It isn't a polite sideshow to the social gathering. It's full bore. It is effort and emotion splattered across the court. He sees the easy entitlement at West Side, the margin for error in life that he never had, and he sets his course the other way. Around the same time, he's invited on a tour of Australia. The idea is for the promising junior to gain some experience, to soak up the wisdom of his elders. It isn't what happens. In one match, Vita storms off court. In another, he shoves his opponent in the chest. Another night, another controversy. An opponent slides under the net, pursing one of Vetus's drop shots. Vetus mockingly stands over him, counting to ten like a boxing referee. In one of the highlights of the trip, Vetus warms up Australian Open champion Ken Rosewell. He's meant to supply the local favourite with a stream of shots, help Rosewell get his eye in. It's a service, like the one Vetus grudgingly gives to the West Side members. Vetus isn't at work, though. He is at play. Instead of dutifully returning the ball to Rosewell, he suddenly slaps a winner past the great man. For Vetus, deference is dead. The box office is king. He is ringmaster to the circus. And this revolution will be televised. Wimbledon's Emerald Grass. Roland Garros's terracotta clay. Melbourne's throbbing heat. You can read a thousand words, listen to hours of radio, but you never quite get it. Not until you see it. As Vetus emerges, the four annual Grand Slams appear on American screens for the first time. Exotic scenes beam into small-town American homes in the small hours. Tennis is a window to a life less ordinary. A life filled with extraordinary characters. Borg and McEnroe are just the lead men. Young faces, short on temper, long on talent, jostle for position behind. And it isn't just men. The top women players forge out with their own tour and strike their own television deals. Sponsors hurry along soon after. The top players are clad by competing sportswear giants. They appear in commercials and on billboards. Stan Smith, a rival American player, lends his name to a shoe that sells millions. Elton John writes a theme tune for Philadelphia's tennis team. The bare bottom of an unknown amateur player becomes a wildly popular poster. The American public, gripped by a fitness boom, book out public courts during the day and Madison Square Gardens at night. Tennis is everywhere. It's a commercial success and a cultural phenomenon. Once starchy and stuffy, it's now a sport for everyone. Vitas does not win as often as some. His Australian Open title is his only Grand Slam. He is ranked third in the world, but never higher. But whatever the result on the court, he's always unmatched in the media. After losing to Borg in the Wimbledon semi-finals, he jokes with the press. He makes light of his defeat. He pokes fun at himself and his friend Borg. At the back of the room as things are winding down, a British journalist asks the unspoken question. Why is Vetus so happy? Vetus shrugs. This was my winning press conference, he says. I hated to waste all this good material. 
Another time, after 16 straight defeats to Jimmy Connors, he finally claims victory. He greets the press with a wag of his finger and a glint in his eye. And here's the quote. Let that be a lesson to you. Nobody beats Vetus Gerolitis 17 times in a row. Tennis offers him financial stability, but it also gives him a stage. Making money is one thing, but Vetus wants to make his mark. What's the point in knuckling down if you can't show off? And personality is currency in the television age. Tennis is perfect for Vetus to flaunt it. When Andy Warhol is commissioned to paint 10 sports stars, Vetus's phone rings. The portrait is as bold as its subject. Red, green and blue. Primary colours for a standout star. His charisma radiates off the canvas. Racket cocked over his shoulder. Chest puffed out. Eyes boring into the viewers. Famous for 15 minutes? Not Vetus. Vetus is famous 24-7. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts. Vetus is playing a warm-up tournament under the baking sun in Sydney. Next week's Australian Open will end with his only Grand Slam title. Back home in New York, there are queues snaking outside cinemas. Tony Manero is the film's star, an immigrant kid escaping New York's daily realities in the dark corners and bright lights of its nightlife. Saturday Night Fever is catching. This is disco at its peak. After the activism of the 60s, disco is hedonism, a lavish sound for outlandishly dressed dance floors, an escape from the everyday in glamour and glitter balls. There is plenty to escape from as well. The Vietnam War has sapped America of confidence and countless young lives. The Watergate scandal had costed a president and moral certainty too. The oil crisis is sending unemployment skywards. And in New York, it's worse than anywhere. The city government is on the brink of bankruptcy. Libraries and hospitals are closing and crime is rocketing. Those who can afford it flee to the suburbs. In their wake, squatters fill shattered buildings. Disco and drugs are the only growth industries. And as the music changes, so does the product. Disco is not a scene for tripping out and passing out. Instead, its followers freak out on cocaine, arriving in bulk and quality from the cartels of Colombia. Vetus has seen the ship. As a freshman at Columbia, he would pull his tennis teammates away from their books and into the fray of New York's nights. Less than five years later, a star of a tennis circuit that's electrifying America, he is back on the town, and no longer on a student budget. His yellow Datsun 
is now a yellow Rolls-Royce with a personalised licence plate, Vetus G. He's a friend of the owner, so he parks up outside Studio 54, the heart of New York's disco beat, a place where the nights spin like the roller skaters on the dance floor. It's an old theatre. The top balcony is where the casual hookups get heavy. The basement is where the drugs sell in supermarket volumes, and between the two, the people of a draw. Mick Jagger, Elizabeth Taylor or David Bowie may be cutting loose. Grace Jones, Liza Minnelli or Truman Capote may be drinking at the bar. And all around them is the wildest life that New York can offer. Gay, straight, rich, poor, black, white, it doesn't matter. That you're down for a good time is what counts, not being down on the guest list. Vitas sums up the mix. He is the New York native termed global celebrity. The immigrant outsider shaking up an establishment sport. Broadway Vetus, they call him, living as large as the Times Square billboards. And he attracts similar attention. Here he is on the front of People Weekly. He leans on the bonnet of another Rolls Royce, an immaculate white suit accessorized with a wide grin. The 10 sexiest bachelors in the world, it says. I don't get lonely too often, Vetus tells the interviewer inside. He dates fellow tennis star Chris Evert, but actresses, models, and socialites too. One night, at an upmarket meal with friends, his fiancée tells the table she wants to have four kids by the time she is 40. Vetus, quick as a whip, says that by the same age, he wants to have six wives. They never marry. One relationship lasts, though. Hanging over the dance floor in Studio 54 is a neon man-in-the-moon ornament. Under his nose hangs a spoon sparkling with lights, delivering snorts of cocaine. Vetus makes his own fun. He fills balloons with a pinch of the drug and lets them rise towards the ceiling. As they bob upward, Vetus pops them. White powder floats down over him and his wide-eyed friends. It's a party piece, a surreal snow globe scene amid the excess around him. But like New York's ticker tape, it sticks with Vetus long after the party is over. Years later, one of Vetus's crowd, a professional backgammon player, is caught in an FBI sting. On tape, he claims to an undercover agent that Vetus will put $20,000 into a deal to buy a shipment of pharmaceutical-grade cocaine. Vetus, still in the world's top five, escapes without charge. But he can't shake off his dependencies. His nocturnal world bleeds into his cold, lonely daylight. The dream morphs and turns. They do that. Dreams are ours, but belong to themselves. And sometimes they don't stop, even when we want them to. Vetus is back at the US Open. The hair is still long, but the blonde has melted to white. His suit hangs loose on his frame. His skin does the opposite clinging tight to his sunken cheekbones. He's been retired for six years. He was not mourned when he left. At his height, he was addicted to attention, taking pleasure in people. He would sign restaurant bills and autograph books, buy rounds before inviting everyone round to continue the party. By the end, that buzz was replaced by solo cocaine bumps. He'd stopped talking to the media. Once he had blown kisses to the crowd after every match, and now he walked off court into his waiting Rolls-Royce and didn't stop driving until he was back in Long Island. He had foreseen the end, and he didn't like what it looked like. Here's another quote, in the third person again. Who's going to give a damn about Vetus Gerolitis when he's finished playing tennis? Half the people don't care already. 
Now, in the stands of the US Open as a spectator, everything looks different to Vitas. The game is different. He watches as his friend and rival, Jimmy Connors, the last man standing from his standout generation, is knocked out. The big serve trumps all as steel rackets turn to graphite. The tournament is won by Stefan Edberg, one of the clean-cut corporate stars squeezing victories and colour out of the game. And the city beyond is different now. New York's party scene is ravaged. AIDS has scarred and scared communities. Crack cocaine is everywhere and leading nowhere. New laws and surging property prices have shuttered the Manhattan night spots that never slept. The boom instead comes from across town in Wall Street. Straightened, straight-laced times, sharp suits and slicked hair. Disco's flamboyance seems frivolous, even ridiculous. And Vetus, Broadway Vetus, is different. He had been a symbol of invitations accepted and appetites indulged, the glory of youth and freedom. Now, he's a warning, a cautionary tale about the dangers of flying too close to the neon lights, of how you can be burning bright and still slowly fade away. He's a tired man, and he's become a tired cliché, the ageing playboy left behind by his scene, a pastiche of his own past. It's the end of his father's life that forces him to look at his own, to face up to past mistakes and face the future. He goes to rehab in Houston, again, but maybe, finally, this time it's worked. The three million dollars in prize money is long gone, but he has direction, an idea of what the next act might be. He's a commentator. His on-air flow is broken by sniffs from sinuses, but the wit and warmth are there. He signs on to the charity circuit, his generosity once sprayed like champion's champagne, now focused on those who need it. How it plays out, though, we never know. Vetus's final public appearance is in Seattle, he and Connors playing exhibition doubles against Borg and John Lloyd. The speed has gone, Vetus no longer hares after the unreachable, but the love is back. These are the people he knows, an era he understands, a delicious dream recurring. But Vetus pulls a back muscle as he lunges after a lob. Instead of staying out west, he flies back east. It's a marginal call, a chance bounce that costs him dear. Instead of reliving old times with Borg and the rest, he accepts an invitation from Martin Reigns. Reigns is a multi-millionaire property developer who once rolled in the same nightlife circles. It is excess that kills Vetus that night, but not the sort you expect. Vetus, tired from his flight, perhaps finally free from an image that demands otherwise, heads for an early night. He crashes out in the pool house. In the basement below are three heaters. Three heaters for one pool. It's not a usual arrangement, but Reigns wants the water heated to 35 degrees Celsius, a Hampton's hotspot, a tropical oasis looking out over the North Atlantic. However, for all his millions, the third and final heater is missing a $1.44 part, a two-foot extension to an exhaust vent. It is the difference between carbon monoxide flowing out of the pool house and into the open air or filling the room around Vetus. 
After the chaos and excess of Vetus's life, death joins him silently as he spends a quiet night alone. As news breaks, so the tales of his consumption are retold. Everyone wants the stories of Vetus spending freely and wasting elegantly. But there is another side to the final balance sheet, part of the ledger that only shows up a few days later. Because on a grey morning on Long Island, Vetus is not alone. Bearing his coffin on their shoulders are Bjorn Borg, John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors, the three greatest players of their age, united in grief. Connors delivers a eulogy. It starts with an anecdote. He, Vetus and Borg were in an elevator after a day's play at a tournament in Alabama. A fan turns to Vetus, mistakes him for Borg because of that shaggy hair, and asks him for an autograph. Vetus grins, asks the fan's name, and signs it as Borg with a flourish. As they walk down the corridor, Connors asks Vetus why. And here's the quote. Always give them something to make them happy. Because Vetus knows not everything he gives away is wasted. Not everything he spends is gone. His dream is happiness for himself, for his family, for the crowd, for the fan in the elevator, for the new friend on the dance floor. That's his dream. And he chases it at full pelt, like a falling drop shot. He knows when the rally is over, when the laughter dies away, when the hangover replaces the high, something invisible still remains. That a kind intention, that a generosity of spirit brings people closer. It creates bonds no money can buy. Connor's speech ends starkly. He breaks down in tears as he looks out into a packed congregation. He was my friend, and I loved him, and I'm going to miss him. It's a simple sentiment, widely shared. Back in Lithuania, now independent once more, they named the National Tennis Centre after their lost son. Vitas, who lived life at such speed, is finally at rest. But his momentum lives on, changing the course of everyone left behind. And that's the story of Vetus Gerolitis. It was written by Mike Henson and performed by me, Tom Price. It was edited by Charlie Frost. The music we used is from our partners, BMG Production Music. If this is your first episode, then scroll down on our feed and find the episode about Sonny Liston, heavyweight champion of the world, or Jock Steen, the manager who died after a heart attack on the side of the pitch, on what should have been one of Scottish football's greatest nights. I got to present that episode, and it's brilliantly written and such a fitting tribute to the big man. We'll have a new episode out on Monday, and if you're up to date, then why not try our Death of a Rockstar series? It's like this one, only it's about the lives of people like Freddie Mercury, George Michael, Whitney Houston, and many, many more. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning, or have never even heard of paddle, or padel, as it's called in North America, 
This is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pitpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. <laughs> 